Awesome. So first of all, I just want to start by saying thank you for being here today. Okay, I recognize that this can be a sensitive and difficult topic, and maybe it was a little bit hard to even show up, uh, whether you're here for yourself or because you want to help others. So I'm proud of you for taking that step and showing up and being here. Um, and I also want to say, like, regardless of why we came today, I really encourage all of us to just check our judgment at the door today, uh, even if that's judgment of yourself. And let's come at this with like some compassion and curiosity and just openness and open heart to maybe what God wants to say to us or what new thing we can pick up or discover about ourselves um, or this issue in general. And I also want to give you all a disclaimer. I'm not an expert by any means whatsoever. I don't have any training in like counseling or advising this anyone who's dealing with online sexual behaviors, man, someday I hope that I have that opportunity. But right now, I'm not a counselor. I just am someone who's walked my own journey to freedom and I'm starting to learn how to walk with other people. Um, also, I'm well aware that we all have varying levels of tolerance when it comes to sensitive subjects like this. So I'm not gonna be offended if at any point you're just like, man, this is too much and I need to step out, whether that's for a minute or the rest of the breakout, like feel free. Um, come back if you can. If not, that's okay. Just go process with Jesus and like, that's fine. You're not going to bother me or offend me. Um, I'm going to try to be sensitive and not like overshare, obviously. Um, and if you do have any questions, just make a note, jot it down, because if we have time at the end, we're going to, hopefully we will come then, we will come around and have an opportunity for those. Um, but I'm just going to roll through and you know, something doesn't make sense or you have a question, just write it down so we can come back to it later. And if that doesn't happen, man, you're welcome to come find me before the weekend's over and talk if you want to. Um, so before we do anything else, I just want to take a moment to pray. God, I just thank you that you are here, that you're with us. God, I ask that you would just make everything super clear as I speak, that the words I say would be what you want me to say. The things that, that we hear and receive would be how you want us to receive them. God, that you would open our eyes and our hearts and help us to, to set aside any judgment and condemnation and just receive your grace and your mercy and your help as we uh, talk for the next hour. We trust you, Jesus, and we trust that you're good no matter what we face. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, so in a little bit, I'm going to share my story, a little bit of my story, but first... I want to talk about one of my favorite scriptures. Now, I can't just get up here and start talking without, like, going to the Bible, right? Because Jesus is, like, the reason we're here, and he has something to say. And there's things in the Bible that apply to all parts of our life, right? So even if it's like, man, I don't, I don't know where to go. Look for this. Like, the Bible still has things that apply. One of my favorite stories of Jesus is found in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. So I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk about it. It says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early the next morning, he returned to the temple courtyard. All the people went to him. So he sat down and began to teach them. The experts in Moses' teachings and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught committing adultery. They made her stand in front of everyone and asked Jesus, Teacher, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. In his teachings, Moses ordered us to stone a woman like this to death. What do you say? They asked this to test him. They wanted to find a reason to bring charges against him. Jesus bent down and used his finger to write on the ground. When they persisted in asking him questions, he straightened up and said, the person who is sinless should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he bent down again and continued writing on the ground. One by one, beginning with the older men, the experts in Moses' teaching and Pharisees left. Jesus was left alone with the woman. Then Jesus straightened up and asked her, Where did they go? Has anyone condemned you? The woman answered, No one, sir. Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. Go, from now on, don't sin. I love this story because it's a beautiful picture of how God views each one of us. I can relate to this woman. We don't even know her name. All right, many people call her the woman caught in adultery. I taught in a semi church in Sunday school once, and my pastor calls her the John 8 lady. And you know what? I love that. Because if I was this woman, I would rather be known by where my story has gone and impacted people than who I used to be, right? 
And so today I'm going to call her the John 8 lady versus the woman caught in adultery. Um, but so as we're calling the John 8 lady, I just want to start with some background. What's happening before this? So there's been a festival. Right before this, there's been a festival in Jerusalem. Uh, it had just ended, so there's still a lot of people around who aren't normally there. It's busy. And Jesus was so hated by the Pharisees and other religious leaders at this point that he initially had refused to go when his brothers invited him to the festival and snuck in later because he didn't want to create a disturbance. Once he got there, though, the leaders found out, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they tried to trap him. They were trying to trap him with his words so they could disprove him or even arrest him, have him executed. But he was also, at the same time, becoming more forthcoming with his teaching and claims and the people were divided. Is he the Messiah? No, he can't be the Messiah. Yeah, he has to be the Messiah, right? There's all this just like back and forth about it, about who he is. And on this last day, right before this story, the last day of the festival, the leaders, the Pharisees, sent the temple guards to arrest him. But they didn't. They came back and said, no man has ever spoken like him. So we couldn't arrest him. Right? So this is how high the tensions are, and it's crowded. But all people still want to hear him, so they're coming to him. There's a big crowd when, when this story takes place that we just read. So now let's consider this lady, the Johnny lady. I wonder, was it possible that she was set up? First, the leaders have been trying to trap Jesus all week. They're getting more and more agitated. And they bring her and what about the guy that she was with? Like, she was caught in adultery. Like, there should have been another person, right? Where's he? And some commentators even suggest that the man she was sleeping with when they caught her was among the leaders that brought her, among the Pharisees that brought her to Jesus. Um, what we do know for sure is that they really were trying to trap Jesus. Like the scripture tells us that. They had no regard whatsoever for this woman. She was just a pawn, a piece in their game. They thought so little of her that they didn't really care that she had broken the law. They just wanted to trap Jesus to get him to say a contradiction. Because here's the deal. They thought Jesus had two choices. He either said, no, don't stone her. Therefore, he couldn't be the son of God because he's breaking the, the Mosaic law, the law that Moses gave back in the Old Testament. And he's not really from God. Right? Or he says, go ahead and stone her, which breaks the Roman law. And then the Romans would come in and execute him and put him to death because he broke the Roman law. So they're like, man, we've got Jesus. Like, either he's going to break Moses' law, or he's going to break Roman, the Roman law, and the Romans are going to take care of him. Um, and they were certain that he had to choose between the word of God and the law of the land. But what they didn't expect was Jesus to turn the accusation around to them. And I love that at first he doesn't even answer them. He's not interested in playing their game. Why? Because he doesn't see this lady in front of him. The John 8 lady is not just a token. She's an individual and so he refuses to engage in their game. Instead, he bends down, writes in the dirt, in the dust that's in the temple court, and they keep pestering him. Eventually, he says, the person who is sinless should be the first to throw a stone at her. And they don't get it right away. But as he continues to write in the dirt, one by one, they leave. Why? Because if she deserves to be stoned, so do they. So they came in with this judgmental, self-righteous attitude. Self-righteous hearts were better than her, but they left alone and aware of their own sinfulness, yet unchanged, right? Because they didn't come in looking for an encounter with Jesus. They came in looking to, to trap him. And once they're all gone, so all the, the accusers are gone, right? But there's still a crowd. Jesus looks at this lady, right? He responds to her so differently than he did to the self-righteous leaders. And knowing the answer already, he says, where did they go? Did anyone condemn you? And the only three words we know that she spoke, no one, sir. Can you imagine the relief in her voice as she said it? She knew they were right. She knew the Mosaic law said that she, in her context, what she had done was punishable by death. She knew the gravity of her sin, the cost that was required. And yet she looked at Jesus in the eye because he sent every one of her accusers away. Okay, so like I think we can all 
you know, whether our struggle is on one social behavior or something else, we can put ourselves in the place of the John 8 lady. And be like, man, when Jesus looks at me, he's standing. He's standing there looking at us in the eye. And no matter what has dragged us there and issued accusations against us, we can know that Jesus has compassion. And he's saying, man, I don't condemn you. Right? I'm here for you. I love you. And the Bible tells us that Satan is the accuser. He regularly accuses believers. We often make the mistake of internalizing his accusations without ever bringing them into the presence of Jesus. And I believe before we start getting into practical steps and we start talking about how to and all those things which are important, and we're going to get there. But like, first we've got to have this right attitude and this right perspective of who God is and how he views us. So picture yourself. Picture that you're in this temple courtyard with Jesus. All these accusations are being flung about. And remember, as you're actually standing face to face with Jesus, he sends your accusers home. Everything's saying you deserve whatever you, whatever he's telling you that you deserve because of your sin, because of anything, because of things done to you. Jesus is like telling them to leave. And he says, has anyone condemned you? No, because he sent them all home. And you can look at him and say, no one. I just want to pause for a second there. No, like, let Jesus speak that. Let the Holy Spirit speak that to your heart. That he's looking at you with grace and compassion. And I want to jump back into the Bible story. I mean, if you're here today because you want to help people who struggle in this way, those of us who have struggled in this way, Let's look at, for a second, just how Jesus responded. Like, that's so important, how he responded in this moment. Jesus gave a qualification for who had the right to condemn this lady. Jesus asked who had the right to condemn sinners. He said, let the person who is sinless throw the first stone at her. Sorry, he, he stated who had the right. The person who is sinless. There was one sinless person there. Jesus. And he didn't throw the stones. Yet Jesus responded in compassion. She's no longer a woman with a death sentence hanging over her head. And so as we think about, man, when people come to us and they say they're struggling with anything, how do we respond first? Jesus didn't deny the truth. He knew she really had sinned. He didn't say, oh, it's no big deal, right? He didn't say, man, we all make mistakes sometimes. Or that's not, you know, that's not as big a deal as you're making out to be. He didn't deny the truth. He refused to be pulled into a conversation about things that distracted from the heart issue, right? That's what the Pharisees wanted. They didn't want it to be about her. But Jesus saw right past that and saw her. Though he had the right to condemn her, he didn't. So, I mean, let's, like I said earlier, let's not, let's not condemn ourselves. Let's not condemn others who come to us. And most importantly, he graciously called her to repentance. I think what I want to say here is that, like, when we call someone to repentance, we're speaking hope into them. That's what Jesus did. He said, you have a future. She thought her life was over in that moment. And Jesus said, no, you can live a life that's different than the life you've been living. You can go and sin no more. And so when we call someone to repentance, it's not, we'll just stop and do something different. Like, that's not the kind of attitude. It's a, hey, like, let's show hope. Let's inspire hope and show, like, hey, God has better for you and it's possible to get there. And that's only possible, though, if we respond in a gracious way first, like Jesus did here. Overall, though, the main reason I, I shared this story, and I don't want to miss this. Um, let me just go back to my notes. The care and compassion Jesus had for the John 8 lady is the same care and compassion he has for each one of us struggling today. He's not looking down on us with contempt, waiting to smite us for our sin, 
mad we can't seem to get it together and stop sinning, neither is he completely unaware and ignorant, saying it's just okay, keep doing what you're doing. Right? He is eager to set us free, just like he was her. So I want to share a little bit of my story with y'all. Um, so growing up, I was, even as a young kid, I had a super active imagination. And you know, I would just, I would sit in the car or in bed at night, and I would just, I had these whole fantasy worlds that like started innocent, right? It was like, this is how, I know, I know now, it's how I would escape emotional pain and boredom and hard things. And like, my mind would just go there. I would, all sorts of stuff. Around the age of eight or nine though, it started to turn sexual. Uh, eventually this led into masturbation. As a young teen in middle school, I asked my youth pastors for help, and um, they actually didn't talk about it. They told someone else who told me essentially to just stop. Um, right? If I could just stop, then like, I wouldn't have asked you for help. Um, a few years later, in high school, I had a school laptop, was in bed using it, saw an ad, clicked out of curiosity. Before you know it, I was hooked. By my senior year of high school, porn films filled almost all of my non-school work time. Like, literally. I would go to school, I'd go to work, I'd come home and get my homework done, and then that's what I would do until I crashed. Repeat the next day. I desperately wanted to stop. I felt like a hypocrite, because you know what? At church, I was a good Christian girl, the one who all the, the parents would tell their kids, be like Natalie. She's going to be a missionary when she grows up. She raises her hands in worship and brings her Bible to church. And that was who they thought I was. And like, here I am struggling with this thing, right? New youth leaders tried asking for help again. Man, I just got some really intense blank stares. No words. A few days later, an envelope, a big thick envelope comes in the mail. And it's full of verses. And not even like encouraging Bible verses. Just like someone Googled Bible verses about porn and printed them out and mailed them to me. And I'm like, how is this supposed to help me? Like, and I, just, I decided at that point that I had only two options. Either I forgot about God and all these things I was doing and imagining and watching in my virtual world, I just went and lived them out and stopped being this, living this double life. Or, I just kept being a hypocrite because no one could help me. No one even looked at me, anyone I told looked at me like I was crazy. And like, man, what am I supposed to do with this? I can't stay in this world and be in this Christian world and be honest. I just, it was really hopeless. I felt so hopeless. Two weeks before I left for college, my whole family was, in, I'm the oldest of three kids, and so my younger siblings went back to school. My parents were in the school system. They started school again. I quit my job so I could like pack my stuff and get ready to work and leave for college. So I'm home, alone. Most of my friends have already left for college. I have nothing, nothing to do. And I'm like, I know what happens when I have nothing to do. And this isn't what I want. And I remember in my parents' living room, literally getting down on my knees by the couch this morning, this morning, two, two weeks before I left for college, and crying out to God. And saying, I need help, and you've got to show up, and you've got to do something, because I can't keep living like this. And you know what, Jesus met me there in that moment, and he actually did a miracle. Because next thing I know, like, my parents are coming home, and all day I'd read my Bible and pray. Literally. Like, all day. All while they were at, at school. And the next day. And the next day. And the next day. And all this time I was supposed to be using to get ready for college. Like, I'm just downloading stuff from Jesus and praying, and I'm spending awesome time in his presence. And you know, I found out, actually it was a couple years later... At that very moment when I was like down on my knees, calling out to God, my future, one of my future like D group, like group leaders, was in a leadership meeting crying out to God for God to break chains of addiction off of incoming freshmen. Right? And so that is a moment of deliverance. And as much as I would like to say from then on out, like that's the end of the story, it's just it's not. Like God delivers us, He shows up and come a little bit more later, but there's more to it. There's more that's required of us often. And so I realized within getting to college, a few weeks of getting to college, I was still prone to temptation. It was hard to not give in. 
Eventually, I felt safe enough in my Kyle community. I took like your own quarters. I took a whole quarter uh, plus some for me to feel safe enough to confess to them and be like, man, these people are a little bit different than some of the, the church people I grew up with. Like, maybe I can be honest. And for the first time in my life, I started to find some real accountability, which helped reduce the shame. It helped remove the shame and give me the ability to just be honest about who I was and, and what was happening in my life. Um, I was able to put some guardrails up, and we'll talk more about that later and what some good guardrails are. But like, this is freshman year of college, for, so 2010, 2010 to 2016, all I knew was accountability and guardrails. And it would be like, I'd do good for a while, but all I was trying to do was change my behavior. And so sometimes a few weeks, sometimes a few months, sometimes closer to a year, and I find myself slipping up again. Like, there's still the cycle. It's not all day, every day, but like, this cycle's still happening. And I just thought that's the way it's gonna be. It's better, but it's like, not all the way gone. Until 2016, I just got married, and for completely unrelated reasons, decided to do a counseling intensive for a whole week. And while I'm there, in this counseling intensive, I discover that the fact that I became addicted to pornography and had these struggles wasn't random. That it actually was how I medicated the emotional pain in my life. Um, and to be honest, this is when real recovery started for me. Those years in Chi Alpha as a student with just accountability, with guardrails were super important because they got me to that place, right? But man, I wish I had that way back sooner. That like, I hadn't spent all those years just doing that and that I had known like, oh, there's emotional healing that God wants to do in my life that will lead to me walking in freedom. And not just in this area, but in so many other ways. Um, so I said 2016 is where I feel like recovery really started. So at that point, I chose. I was like, I'm going to make this a priority in my life. I took a step back from some stuff and started actually working a 12-step program to address the brokenness inside of myself. Um, and because of that, I was able to get out of the addictive cycle. And while I have slipped up, to be honest with you all, I slipped up a few times since then. I've now gone over two and a half years without consuming any pornographic content. And I truly believe it's possible to live the rest of my life without ever doing so again. And I say this to inspire hope in you, that if you're struggling today, I've been where you are, no matter what the degree is, freedom is possible. Healing is possible. So, a little bit of my story, if you all have other questions about that, I'm a pretty open book, one-on-one. -on -one. I'd love to, to talk if you want to later. Um, so let's talk about some definitions, all right? Like, let's define some things. Let's start with, what is actually healthy sexuality, right? So if you were in the last breakout in here with Woody, he started to talk about this a little bit. Not all sex is bad, right? Sex was created by God. It has a beautiful purpose. It's not dirty or perverted or to be avoided at all costs, no matter what. Okay? So what we often hear, though, in the church is that God designed sex to be between one biological male and one biological female who are married to each other. And this is true. This is the beginning, it's the context, right? The context for where sex belongs, but maybe it's just like not the whole picture. Um, but we need to have that context. So we start with that foundation. What else can we add to create a holistic definition of healthy sexuality? And listen to me, if you're single and you're like, I'm not moving, this still applies to you, right? Because you can learn to be this kind of person so it comes out in all areas of life, including your sexuality now and in the future, like, yeah. So, healthy sexuality is respectful, meaning it doesn't just degrade or shame, okay? And as, we, as I'm talking about these things, like, pornography is gonna be the opposite of all the healthy things. Like, we can struggle with any unwanted sexual behavior, but like, pornography, just, it's all the unhealthy things. Yeah. There's never, says, there's never an appropriate place for pornography, even within marriage because it, it is unhealthy. It has all unhealthy things, not the healthy things. And so, healthy sexuality is respectful. It's fun and exciting because it's not demanding or obligatory. It's victimless. Pornography and other unhealthy sexual behavior 
victimizes and exploits people because it's all about me. Right? Healthy sexuality is intimate and not just physically, but emotionally. It, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It grows like emotional attachment. It comes from emotional attachment and connectedness, not just getting my needs met. Which leads into the next one. Healthy sexuality is mutual. It's mutual in expression, not all about me. The foundation of it is trust. Like, I really trust someone, and therefore, I choose to make a commitment to them lifelong, and then sexuality comes out of that. It's safe, meaning it doesn't create fear. If it creates fear, something's off. This isn't right. We already said it serves to connect emotionally. It creates warmth and oneness. That's what God designed it for. Um, healthy sexuality deepens our values and beliefs, and it's authentic. I'm going to sure I give credit where credit's due. So that like, list I just read comes from a researcher and author named Jolie Slattery, um, if you want to write that down. I mean, so like, just so we have this understanding of what, what healthy sexuality is in the context of marriage, and what, what it is that we can get to and what we can see in our lives. And man, like I said, like you can have this, even as a single person, like think about that list. In other areas of my life, am I respectful? Am I fun versus demanding and obligatory? Like, do I live my life in such a way that people don't feel like I'm victimizing them, right? Just you can go through that list and be like, am I this kind of person in general? If you're not, then even if you get married, like your sex life isn't gonna be healthy because that's gonna come out. And obviously we're like, man, we wanna get there. It's a journey and it's a process. I just wanted to find that so we have a starting place of what we're looking to. The second thing I wanted to find really quick is unwanted sexual behavior. I kind of use that in like the lingo of the, the breakout. Unwanted sexual behavior is any sexual behavior that continues to persist in our lives despite our best efforts to change it, right? Something I don't want to be doing, I keep doing it anyway, not sure why I can't stop. And then lastly, with definitions, I want to talk about addiction. Some of us might have strong reactions to the word addiction, and I don't use it lightly. Uh, so I just want to take a minute to explain it, explain, like, why do I use it? So let's think about some questions, just for you personally. If you're here and you're, you're here because you struggle, um, think about the behavior that led you to be here, the behaviors that caused you to, to show up today. How long have they been in your life? How many times have you tried to stop? And are they causing you or anyone else in your life significant pain? If these behaviors have been in our life for a significant amount of time, we've tried to stop multiple times unsuccessfully, and it's causing us or others pain, it's likely an addiction. Another question to consider is, am I using this behavior to alter my mood? Okay, not all things we do to alter our mood are problematic or addictive. Like, I found that deep breathing really helps me calm down when I'm angry, angry right? Turning on worship music brings some peace. But when we're using a behavior substance in a pathological way, meaning it's not healthy, I can't stop, it's primarily useful because it alters my mood, then that's an indication that addiction might be present. And notice that addiction doesn't have anything to do with frequency or which behaviors you're struggling with. Okay. And this is super important, you guys. Using the word addiction doesn't excuse any behavior. Sin is still sin, nor does it say anything about our identity and, or our relationship with Jesus. Okay. It just helps us to find the depth of the struggle and identify some next steps. So for some of us, admitting that we're addicted frees us from a binge purge cycle of just trying harder to stop or seek a miraculous deliverance. And not to say that Jesus can't, but you saw from my story and research backs up what happened in my story, that often if we have this miraculous deliverance experience and we don't take further steps into healing, then it just comes back or we replace the behavior with something else that isn't healthy as well. Okay. Calling it an addiction doesn't make it okay. It doesn't give us an excuse. Recognizing it as an addiction explains why our attempts at change have been unsuccessful. Despite the miracle I experienced before college, and all the times I confessed in the several years after that, I haven't gone deep enough for real transformation to occur. So when it comes to, to this, why do we struggle to just simply stop? So there's this cycle. So picture a big circle with me, right? And at the top of the circle is preoccupation. 
All right, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to like draw this, write this out. So preoccupation is up here. And preoccupation is an unhealthy level of fantasy and desire that begins to lead a person off course. As our private thoughts, we now begin to feel separated, distant from God and others who care about us. Right? This could be sexual or not when it's in the preoccupation. Second thing is the preoccupation leads to ritualization. A lot of us probably don't even recognize that this own cycle is taking place in our lives. It's not something we can see until we look for it. But ritualization is when these thoughts and desires left unaddressed begin to lead us into a ritual. We begin to move from thought to action. Maybe it's picking up my phone, scrolling mindlessly on social media, locking the door, going to a certain website, right? Maybe you can even think what it is for you if you struggle. We're entering back into a common track. For some of us, it might even feel like a trance-like state. Not like we're not in control. We are, but just like, man, this is happening again. I'm going here. Like, we recognize that our brain and body are moving towards the destructive behavior. So then at the bottom, we come down to compulsion, or some people call this acting out, where we, just, we engage with the familiar behavior, and then flooded with shame, remorse, and so we need to hide and cover that up, which drives us into the last, right here, the last uh, item on the cycle, despair. Guilt, shame, not just, I did something bad, I am someone bad, leads us to hopelessness, and the mantra in the back of our head is what they don't know about me, right? It's this secret, which then leads us right back to the preoccupation. These hard emotions, these things we want to deal with, and the cycle continues, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, whatever the frequency of that cycle is there. And so I share that framework um, because I think it's helpful, right, for some of us to recognize when they're that does not mean, I'm not trying to say every single one of us in here is an addict or a freak. Excuse me. Every person who struggles is an addict. If that just doesn't seem to fit with you, like, the pathway I'm about to lead out still applies and is still helpful, okay? Like, don't check out on me if you're just like, you know, I don't know if that's really me. Something to pursue later, dig more into. I'm going to share some resources with you guys that, like, can help you uh, dig into that. But if it doesn't fit for you, like, just keep tracking with me. It's okay. Um... So, practical steps. This is what you all want, right? I hope. First, the first step in finding freedom is to admit we have a problem and the extent of our problem. Those of us who struggle have a tendency to minimize and deny. We say things like, it's not that bad. It's only, well, this time it's different because at least I didn't, mm, that didn't really happen. See, what actually happened how many times do you catch yourself, maybe not out loud, but in your head? That's what you think about it. We've learned to do this to avoid emotional pain and shame as well. We can't find real lasting freedom if we're not willing to admit to ourselves and to others that we have a problem and how big and vast the problem is, how deep the problem is. When we're ready to do that, we're at a point where we can like address the brokenness within us. And part of this is realizing that the problem is within ourselves. We have a tendency to shift the blame and be like, well, if they wouldn't dress that way, um, if the media wasn't the way it was, you know, then I just wouldn't have this problem. Um, but Jesus tells us in Mark 7, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, theft, murder, adultery, Greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All, all these evil things come from within and defile a person. Okay? If you want to write down another scripture, look at it later. Romans 7, 14 through 25. Paul talks about the struggle of sin that comes from within us. Okay? So acknowledging that the problem is within us and not way out there or other people's fault enables us to take full responsibility and develop an attitude of doing whatever it takes to find freedom. That is so important. Of saying, you know what, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to find freedom. The next step, number two, is to set guardrails and invite safe people in. Okay. Y'all, you heard what I just shared about six, six years of my life where all I had was guardrails and accountability. 
So they're not the whole solution. And sometimes in the church world, this is where we get tripped up. We're like, if I just set enough guardrails and confess, then the problem will eventually go away. Um, it probably won't, which is why there's a step three coming up. But that doesn't mean we can just ignore this part. It's still a vital part of the solution. Here's the deal. Addiction literally changes our brains. And I thought about going more into this, but like, there's just so much out there that you can do if you haven't read about this or like watched videos on it. Like, it's out there. And I encourage you to try it. There's some resources I said to share with you later that talks about that. Um, so what this means is as we've gone to porn or other behaviors over time, we've trained our brain to respond to certain stimuli. And often the pattern of behavior and emotions leading up to an episode of acting out, giving temptation, isn't something that we're fully aware of, and it starts long before we view any content, participate in any behavior. And guardrails and accountability work together to make these pathways difficult to access while we rebuild and rewire our brains. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine that your sexuality is like a river, okay? So this river is not going in the best place, right? And so, but guardrails are like a dam that we could build, put some like boulders in the river, do some like jerry-rigging to get it to flow a different direction, okay? But that's not a permanent solution. If we don't address what's actually causing the river to go off course, eventually it's gonna overpower the dam and break it down, or it's just gonna like, go another way that's just as equally destructive, right? And so this is why maybe some of us have had periods where like we're not giving in to temptation sexually, but we're struggling in other areas because we haven't addressed the root issue. And so like maybe for you that's like, you know I've gone a while before, since I've like last looked at porn, but I've been struggling with disordered eating or gambling, too much shopping, too much time on social media where I'm just numbing out to it. like. It's because there's still a root issue. It all ties back to the same place usually. And for some of us, I understand, like I've been here before, stopping this unwanted behavior may seem good enough right now. But there's a deeper healing that God wants to do in each of our lives. He doesn't want to just take away the thing we're wrongfully using to medicate the pain. He wants to heal our wounds. It's a process. And in the meantime, guardrails are helpful. So what do I mean by guardrails? Here's some examples. Maybe it means I don't use a laptop in bed. That's one of mine personally. Um, maybe it means I have a bedtime and follow it. Maybe it means I'm not on social media in the season of my life, period, full stop, at all. Maybe it means not watching movies with a certain rating. Maybe it means I don't have any internet access whatsoever on my phone. I know that sounds radical, but I know people who in 2023 don't have internet on their phone because it's that important. Uh, Maybe it means using accountability software that doesn't have any loopholes. Um, or telling a specific person, a group of people, every time temptation comes. Like, the moment you're tempted. Or choosing to not be alone, feeling a certain emotion. And a lot of these things are forever, right? They're just guardrails that we could put in our lives to make it more difficult to get access to the thing that we don't want to do anymore. I love this quote. It comes from on the Bible app, YouVersion. There's a devotional by Covenant Eyes that's a 40-day challenge. And somewhere in there, they say, when you're, you're at your best, plan for your worst. When your resolve to quit porn is high, it is important to remember that a day will come when your resolve will not be as high, and you need to have a plan in place that carries you through those days. A great resource for walking through this is Pure Desire's free ebook. And I'll, this will be on the sheet I give you guys later. Five steps to porn free living. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. If you're struggling, get that book, work through it, and then bring people in to like work through it with you as well. If you're here because you want to help people, like look through the book. And next time, you know, you're meeting with someone or you are talking to someone who's struggling, like, hey, can we do this together? Can we do these exercises? And it'll help you uh, set guardrails. I'm taking longer than I thought, so I'm, I'm going to kind of skip over. There's In there, there's an uh, exercise called the Three Circles Tool. I was going to explain that, but y'all, this was so helpful. It's one of the most helpful tools for me in just setting guardrails. And so I encourage you to look at that. Um, I'm not going to take time to explain it. So what do I mean by your people? Right? I've said that a few times. Like, look at, look at these guardrails, invite other people in. Who are those people? 
They're those you can invite in your inner world to hold you accountable and walk this journey with you. Safe people, they don't shame you for struggling and can keep what you share confidential while also pointing you to truth in a loving way. Also, if you're here because you want to help people, that's who we should aspire to be. We don't shame people. We keep what they share confidential. You know, we know there's caveats to that, right? If someone's in danger or going to hurt someone or has a plan, like... But otherwise, confidential. And we point out the truth lovingly. Right? Your Kyle family, of course, is a great place to start looking for these safe people. Guys with guys, girls with girls. And it doesn't need to be everyone, right? Maybe your other Kyle group does know that, like, you've struggled in this area in the past, or you are struggling. Um, but not everyone in our group needs to walk through the nitty-gritty with us. Like, a few trusted people. So what are we asking of these people? Or if we want to be one of those people, what should we do? Accountability is more than just a confess and pray session whenever we slip. Honesty helps for sure, but simply being honest without a full plan in place rarely leads to transformation. Most accountability becomes another performance-based behavior-focused group. All right. That last little bit about honesty is from Nick Stumbo, who's the uh, executive director of Pure Desire and also ministry. Um, so when we are looking for accountability or we can provide accountability, let's do more than just talk about temptation. Work through that Five Steps to Porn Free Living workbook. Be willing to talk about Man, this is where I was tempted last. You know the Bible promises us a way of escape. That for every temptation there's a way of escape. And sometimes what we do is we're tempted and we just like walk right up to it. And we're like, oh, I don't see a way out. But there's one there. There's also one back here and back here and back here and like all the way. So like next time you're tempted... Whether or not you give into the temptation, take the scenario to your people, your accountability people, and be like, hey, this is the scenario. Help me identify the way of escape at every single step, right? Where could I have gotten out? And if you're, like, providing accountability for someone, ask them, like, hey, let's look at where multiple ways you, you, what you could have done differently. This is a big one. If you're struggling and you're asking someone for accountability, be willing to let them call you out when you're minimizing, denying, refusing to accept responsibility, or being aloof. Right. And if you're going to honestly help people, you have to be willing to do those things. If someone's just like, not showing up, like, and you're not going to do anything about it, or you're not going to ask them, you're just going to wait till they bring it up, I mean, you've you got to be willing to ask and have the hard conversations if you're really truly going to help someone. Um, Alright, so we said... First step, admit we have a problem and how big the problem is. Second step, set guardrails and invite people into our lives. Those things have to happen first, okay? And then the third step is to intentionally address our wounds. Okay, this is not something we can effectively do on our own. Okay, we're all wounded, right? We might not want to admit it. We might like to pretend everything's okay, all is good. But the truth is we all are born into a sinful, broken world. And so regardless of how great your family situation was growing up, how many friends you had, how successful you appear to be when it comes to academics or sports or whatever, like, there's some woundedness inside of us. And we can find healing for that woundedness. And there's multiple options, resources available for addressing woundedness, especially, or specifically that relate to woundedness um, that's the root of unwanted sexual behavior. But I believe that there's some like key things we need to look for if we're going to use a resource to help us do this. Um, first, it has to be biblically based. Right? The foundation for real healing comes from biblical truth. Who does God say we are? How does he invite us to live? What was his intention in creating us? Okay, so we must wrestle with these questions based our lives on biblical truths. But just discovering this knowledge from doing a Bible study probably isn't enough. Because if it was, we wouldn't be struggling. Right? We must apply this truth, not just to our behavior, but also at a heart level. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
if we're struggling with unwanted behavior, then something's blocking our ability to just put these things into practice. And we need experienced people to guide us on the journey of learning how to renew our minds with biblical truth in a way that actually works for us. And this is where the second component comes in. Any course of action we follow should be clinically informed. What do I mean by that? There's so much research out there that's been done on pornography addiction and sexual addiction. And unfortunately in the church, we do ourselves a disservice when we ignore it because it's not explicitly laid out in the Bible, right? Linda Siler, who's a Chi Alpha pastor, likes to say all truth is God's truth. And I'm sure she's quoting someone else when she says that. But like, I learned it from her and it's true. Like if it's true, it can find its way back from God. And so there's research out there and people who have dedicated their lives to helping people break free from unwanted sexual behavior. And like, yes, it has to be biblically founded first, but like, let's also not just ignore all of that research and experience of those who have gone before us. And lastly, the best place to heal is within community. Our emotional wounds, our pain isn't created in isolation. The vast majority of it comes from our families of origin. Even if they were the best family ever, Jesus loving, like they're not perfect. And so there is woundedness there. There's woundedness from our culture, our friends, relationships we've been in. And those, those wounds create pain and damage that God can heal. But he chooses to do it in community. We're wounded in community, we heal in community. And so this community includes the people we've already talked about. Your accountability people. It's even stronger though, if it includes people who've walked this journey or a little bit farther along than us in recovery. Okay, so options. I'm just gonna list off some things. Actually, so I'm just gonna throw up a slide for y'all. Um, it's a QR code if you wanna go to it. If I have a, printed, uh, if you want to find me afterwards and get it. It's also kathamemphis.com, there's a banner, and you can click it. You'll just see it pop up on the top. These are some resources, okay? And so they're all listed on there. Options for finding a roadmap for healing, right? And remember, I already said, this comes after getting some accountability, being open with your community, and setting guardrails. One is a ministry I already mentioned called Pure Desire. They have groups that provide community that are biblically founded and also like clinically informed, the way I described, to walk you through tools, guardrails, healing, all of it. Um, professional counseling is sometimes a tool that God uses, right? And just like if we were sick with cancer, we wouldn't just expect our primary care physician to like be able to heal it and go to a specialist. The same thing applies here. Not everyone needs counseling, right? Like sometimes, a group and just finding healing through other resources with our community is enough. But if you're in a place where you've already done a lot of what I've talked about and you're still struggling, then I could encourage you to consider counseling and specifically look for someone who's certified as a sex addiction therapist or a pastoral sex addiction professional. Um, and again, that word might sound like, I'm not sure if it's me. Well, it doesn't hurt to like go and explore with them. Is it me? Like, or is it not? If not, okay, now I know. I can find healing, even if it, like, any healing we pursue is good for us, you know? Like, all it's gonna, the worst thing that can happen is you get healthy in other areas, okay? So my caveat is just don't go to any random counselor. I recognize y'all are students, right? And so the first place you might wanna go if you decide to do counseling is on campus and your local, your campus counseling center. And they may or may not have someone certified in this area. If they don't, um, you know, you can just say like, I'd be upfront is what I'm trying to say. When you do your intake, when you first go, say, hey, this is why I'm here. Not just like, I just want counseling and not tell them why. Because you can say like, I'm struggling here and this is why I'm coming to pursue this. Can you give me someone who's either certified or at least has a little bit of experience in this area? And if you want to a counselor, whether it's on campus or someone else, and it's not a good fit, you can always ask for a different person. Like I think sometimes people are afraid of getting stuck with someone they don't just drive with. You can be like, this isn't really working. I need a different person, and they'll give you, set you up with a different counselor. Hmm. But again, that's just if you feel like counseling is the right next step. Also, some books I recommend. Okay, I'm going to give you all another caveat. Do not just go pick up this book, these books and start reading them if you haven't done the other steps. You've got to get in good community first and set some guardrails um, before you just jump in and start trying to like address things. So one book, this one is specifically for... Woman, it's called No Stones. 
uh, which that title comes from the passage I talked about. And then I haven't actually read this one, but the guy who wrote it is like one of the uh, guys who help uh, supervise these people who are trying to get a license as a pastoral sex addiction professional. And it came recommended by National Kyle So I trust it. The Freedom Fight. And then the book Unwanted by Jay Stringer. I have an version of that, so I can't show it to you. But I also um, highly recommend that one after you have attraction period with some guardrails. They're working, you're walking with people, you're not reading it by yourself, you're reading it with them. And maybe they even know, hey, I'm gonna sit down and read this book. Because it can just be really triggering. Um, but that doesn't mean we should avoid it altogether, right? Like, we want to press into the pain and press into the things so that we can find healing. Okay, so I don't say that to scare you, but just so that you're, you're aware. Um, yeah, well, I took way longer than I thought I was going to do on that. So, um, there's some other resources on that page. I just encourage you to look at them. Man, the thing that I wish I had found so much sooner is Pure Desire. And especially if you're here and you're like, man, I just want to help people. Pure Desire has a super laid out path for how to do that. And they have a podcast. Highly recommend their podcast, whether you're struggling or want to help people. So many, so many uh, episodes. You can just like look through them and be like, oh, this one impressed me. They talk about marriage a lot, but there's also some that are like specifically for singles. And if you're like, man, I just need to get into a group. I feel like that's, for me, like they have online groups. You can use their website to find local groups. Um, yeah, so that's all laid out there. And like I said, if you have questions, you can come find me later. But what I want to do for these last few minutes I want to make sure that we leave some time to hear from the Holy Spirit individually. And so, like, if y'all have made it this far, I'm going to ask that you stay. Don't, like, skip this part, okay? And we're going to be quiet. I'm not going to turn any music. Um, we're just going to be silent for the next five minutes. Um, and what I want you to do is silently ask the Holy Spirit to point out for you where you are. If you struggle where you are in those three steps, what's next for you? And then, and they're listed on that, that resource sheet. And then also, like, what's the next thing for me? Maybe it's like, I haven't really been honest about how bad my struggle is, and I need to be. Just with myself and God right now. Maybe it's, I've never told anyone. And so before I leave this weekend, I need to tell not a random person, but like, someone from my campus, maybe preferably even my small group or roommate or discipler, who I see, not the random person who's like, oh, I kind of know them, and they won't ever check up on me again, right? Like, um, maybe it's like you've been caught in this binge purge cycle of guardrails, the guardrail doesn't work, I confess, and then I'm like back doing it again. Um, and so you're like, it's time to pursue some real inner healing and intentionally work on healing my woundedness. And it's asking the Holy Spirit how he wants you to do that, where he wants you to start, what resource who he wants you to invite to walk that journey with you. Um, yeah, so maybe it's something else. The Holy Spirit will speak to you. So I'm going to pray. We're going to be quiet for a few minutes and just spend some time listening. God, once again, I just thank you that you're good, that you're here, that you're with us, that you look at us with compassion and not condemnation, and that there's hope. God, right now, I just pray for every person in this room whether they're here because they struggle or they're here because they want to help someone, that you would give them exactly what the next step is for them. That before they walk out of this room, they would hear from you and they would know what they need to do next, either to find their own freedom or to help other people in their lives. Jesus, we trust you.
before we go eat lunch, I want to share two verses with you guys really quick. Encouragement as we walk out of here. Galatians 6, 9 says, So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. So whether you're struggling or you want to help people and it's hard and weary, God's encouragement is keep going and trusting him and we will reap the harvest of blessing. The other one I want to read is from Isaiah 58, uh, verse 12. This is a specific prophecy uh, given, but I feel like we can apply it to our lives. That some of us, it's hard to have hope right now. Um, but what God wants to do is not only bring us out of the struggle, but also use us to minister to others. Isaiah 58, 12 says, Some of you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will restore the foundations of long ago. You will be called the repairer of broken walls, the restorer of streets where people live. I feel like that applies to people's lives as well. That not only will you reap a harvest of good if you don't give up and keep walking with Jesus and what he has for you, but he will take you to a place where you can be a repairer of broken walls in people's lives and help them see freedom as well. So I hope you go with hope, with hope. Hearing, having heard from the Holy Spirit on what he wants next. I'm sorry, we don't have time for questions, but if any of y'all want to talk to me before we leave tomorrow, try to find me during free time or lunch, I'm open to that. Um, so, thank you all.